So, I'm going to be doing a video today that has been probably more requested than any other video. I'm going to be doing a response to James White on justification. Now, this is from one of his, one of the great debates in the 90s against Robertson Genis. And it's going to be uh, on the topic of, as I said, justification. Now, before we begin, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the Catholic doctrines of grace, especially in the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, if you go to my website, christianbuagner.com, and you sign up for the Annotated Thomist, I have been going through the Tract on Grace in the Summa, explaining and summarizing all of St. Thomas's points. And that's generally what I'm going to be doing in this video, because when it comes to what James White is responding to, it is a horrific, horrific um, presentation of Catholic theology. It, he misses it. He misses the mark very far. It is not even close to how the angelic doctor, for example, would, would set it out. So what I'm going to be doing uh, today is really just calling you back to the Summa to Thomas's commentaries and showing how James White really just has no idea what he's talking about. I would, I would like to say that he does have an idea of what he's talking about and he is getting close, but he really uh, does not even get anywhere near the Catholic doctrine on the matter. And as a note, I will be keeping an eye on the live chat. I probably won't be responding uh, to many questions, unless it's from one of my uh, members, and you can click join below, or if it's a super chat, or if it's just a really good comment, I might respond to it if it's something that I have uh, not covered. But before we begin, uh, let us let us pray. O Lord, hear our prayer, and let our cry come unto thee. Let us pray. Ineffable Creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom has appointed three hierarchies of angels, and set them in admirable order high above the heavens, and has disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array. Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, 
Be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind, and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration, understand, capacity to retain, method, method and facility in study, subtlety and in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect, perfect the achievement of my work. Thou art true God and man, and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Anthony of Padua, Hammer of Heretics, pray for us. Okay, let us begin and get right into it. Very much looking forward to this one. Okay, and we'll be starting in minute 15, and I'm going to go to about minute 45 because that's just his opening statement. But before, I'm going to check the, uh, check the live chat. Finally made it, made it to a live. Glad to hear it. Happy to have you. Okay, let us begin. And um, make sure you let me know whether you can actually hear because sometimes I mess it up. Oh, love that prayer. Yes, it is um, St. Thomas's prayer before study. I think I'm going to start praying that probably before streams. So good. I'm going to be putting it on 1.25 speed, making sure we get every single word of James White in beautiful clarity. Being here this evening, it is good to see all of you that uh, braved the weather, and uh, it is great to be here again on Long Island for the fifth of the great debate series. An ancient Christian writer said, they all therefore were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or their own works or the righteous doing which they wrought, but through his will. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith whereby the almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So wrote the Church of Rome to the Church of Corinth at the beginning of the second century. And as a quick note, uh, after that opening remark, what Dr. White thinks when he reads out this quote, it's from First Clement, uh, from Pope St. Clement's uh, letter to Corinth, is he thinks that's a, a gotcha quote right there. But I'm going to tell you right now, we are justified by faith outside of any sort of works of our own. Yeah, that's true. Now, what Dr. White thinks he's doing is he thinks he's debunking somehow our view of justification, but it's not so. Uh, St. Thomas himself uses the language of faith alone uh, multiple times throughout his works, even in some of his most famous uh, passages, such as his Eucharistic hymn. He says that faith alone suffices. Now, the question is not whether faith alone suffices. The question is, what kind of faith alone suffices? Because you'll get some, uh, for example, there's a biblical commentator named Lagrange, not Gary Gould Lagrange, but a different one, in the 18th century. And when he's interpreting uh, St. Paul's epistles, he's a Catholic, uh, very, very famous biblical commentator. You see it uh, in the Sacred Theologia Summa when it discusses how faith is used in the New Testament, is that uh, faith is uh, can, can be used in two senses. So faith first can be used in the sense of merely the intellectual assent to the certain propositions 
of the Catholic faith for the sake alone of God's revelation of them. This is not the sense in which we speak of faith alone. This is the dead faith, actually, which, uh, which St. James talks about in his epistle. What we mean by faith is fides formata, or formed faith. And formed faith is going to be faith which is vivified by charity and includes the notion of repentance. And, uh, or, uh, and, and repentance includes the notion of penance, but uh, we'll, we uh, aren't really going to need to get into that on, on this stream. So why that's important, uh, why even brought up, including the notion of repentance, is you'll get some uh, Protestants like the, the sort of IFBers, the kind of Stephen Anderson type. They'll say that, well, we are justified by, uh, by faith alone. Uh, repentance is not faith. Therefore, uh, you don't need repentance. Now, James White will respond, well, repentance is really uh, included in the notion of saving faith. And that's kind of going to kind of be the Catholic response too, is to James White trying to exclude um, things like charity or uh, the virtue of penance from the idea of faith is that actually when it comes to a saving faith, what we're going to have is the notion of repentance and the notion of charity are going to be included in the holistic view of fides formata. So I will continue. Now, Mr. Sanjanis and I have produced a lot of on this particular subject. Uh, his book, Not by Faith Alone, is about 770-some-odd pages long. We hope to have my new book on the subject of salvation here this evening. It will be available Saturday called The Potter's Freedom. I'm writing a book for Bethany House Publishers right now called The God Who Justifies, and those two books together are about 750 pages. So you add everything up that we've written just in those books, and there's about 1,500 pages, which if you read one page per minute, it would take you 25 hours to read everything that we've written on this subject. Some people, Robert, call me verbose. I'm not sure if anyone's ever said that to you. We write a lot. And that allows us exactly 1 60th of the material we've presented in the period of time that we have up here. So obviously what that means is we've got to summarize tonight. The debate really, I believe, is very simple. No matter how complex man has made it over the years, the Bible tells us that we can know the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, twice in his letter to the Galatians, makes reference to the truth of the gospel, and John promises us that the truth would remain always with us. Now, there are two positions being presented in regards to this issue. I believe that one is a theocentric or God-centered message, and that is God saves, and he saves perfectly. But the religions so true. of the world say that God makes a way of salvation possible, but that, in the final analysis, man is the one who determines his own salvation. Note I did not say that man saves himself. Almost none of man's religions that I know of make such a claim. The fundamental issue, however, is just this. Does God save, or does he, to use the words of that old song, need a little help from his friends? Is salvation a cooperative effort, or the work solely of God to his glory alone? And notice uh, right here, just right off the bat, what you get is a ter terrible sort of misrepresentation of what we're going to say about justification. Because uh, what, what we would say about the role of man's cooperation uh, in the process of justification, it's going to be something which is uh, instrumental and only uh, said to be meritorious in that uh, God has that gracious disposition uh, towards that, and it's gonna it's gonna be the same way in in what in what Doctor uh, I mean uh, James White says 
on the matter, because what James White would say on the matter is that it is God completely who justifies and that faith in the uh, in, in justification is something which God uses as an instrument of justification. And that is exactly uh, how we are going to phrase it, because if he's going to take this completely to the uh, conclusion to completely, if he is going to um, be consistent with this type of argumentation, he's going to have to completely remove faith because faith involves us. Uh, therefore, uh, faith cannot uh, take any role in justification, but he's not going to follow that sort of logic because there's a different sort of standard for Catholics when we when we think about justification than he gives for himself. And what I wanted to do real quick is I wanted to share a quote with, uh, from The Living Flame of Love by St. John of the Cross, where he's writing about justification. And I want you to ask yourself whether this is um, whether this is theocentric or whether this is man-centered, whether this is uh, something wherein Catholics are just uh, viewing the sort of two ropes pulling the boat, or whether uh, you really have a, a God completely working in and through us for his own glory. So I'm going to make this a little bit bigger. So uh, this flame of love is the spirit of the, its bridegroom, who is the Holy Spirit. The soul feels him within itself, not only as a fire that has consumed and transformed it, but as a fire that burns and flares within it. As I mentioned, and that flame, every time it flares up, bathes the soul in glory and refreshes it with the quality of divine life. Such is the activity of the Holy Spirit in the soul transformed in love. The interior acts he produces shoot up flames. Notice the he is the Holy Spirit. For they are acts inflamed of love, in which the will of the soul united with that flame, made one with it, loves most sublimely. Thus these acts of love are most precious. One of them is more meritorious and valuable, valuable than all the deeds of a person may have performed in the whole life without this transformation, however great they may uh, have been. The same difference lying between a habit and an act lies between, this, uh, between the transformation of love and the flame of love. It is like the difference between wood on fire and the flame leaping up from it. For the flame is the effect of the fire present within it. We can compare the soul in its ordinary condition in this state of transformation to love to the log of wood that is ever immersed in fire and acts of this soul to the flame that bursts up from the fire of love. The more intense the fire of union, the more vehemently does this fire burst into flames. The acts of the will are united to this flame and ascends, carried away and absorbed in the flame of the Holy Spirit, just as the angel mounted to God in the flame of Manoah's sacrifice. Thus, in this state, the soul cannot make acts because the Holy Spirit makes them all and moves it towards them. As a result, all the acts of the soul are divine since both the movement to these acts and their execution stem from God. It seems to such persons that every time this flame shoots up, making them love with delight and divine quality, it is giving them eternal life, since it raises them up to the activity of God in God. Notice, this isn't, this isn't some sort of uh, two ropes tugging the boat. No, this is the, the, flame of, the flame and fire of love. This is grace working in and through us to make these acts through what's uh, first called actual grace, which is kind of the impelling movement of the soul towards God, and then habitual grace. And then there's the required uh, continuance of this grace. And I'm going to hop over real quick to St. Thomas Aquinas in Prima Secunde. Uh, I think it is 
110, no, 109 it's going to be, of the necessity of grace. So let's... Boom. Whether man possessed of grace needs the help of grace in order to persevere. And then I answer that. Perseverance is taken in... Uh, actually, I think it's... Nope. Perseverance is taken in three ways. First, to signify a habit of the mind, whereby a man uh, stands steadfastly, lest he be moved by the assault of sadness from what is virtuous. And thus, perseverance is to sadness as countenance is to concupiscence and pleasure, as the philosopher says. Second, perseverance may be called a habit, whereby a man has the purpose of persevering in good unto the end. And in both these ways, perseverance is infused together with grace even as countenance and the other virtues are. Third, and this is the most important, because this is going to be what James White is saying, oh, it's the, the work of man, and uh, you, you have to work together and cooperate, blah, blah, blah. Third, perseverance is called the abiding and good to the end of life. And in order to have this perseverance, man does not indeed need another habitual grace, but he needs the divine assistance guiding and guarding him against the attacks of the passions, as appears from the preceding article. And hence, after anyone has been justified by grace, he still needs to beseech God for the aforesaid gift of perseverance, that he may be kept from evil to the end of his life. For to many grace is given to whom perseverance in grace is not given. Notice all of these, every single last act, and we're going to see in all this entire um, question, 109, of the necessity of grace. What you're going to see is in everything, from the from the there's a natural working and natural concurrence which is found in the natural acts of man and then there is that um there's that grace completely above nature completely above nature for 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 catholics there's what's called the absolute supernaturality of grace where the there is a certain uh super added form that uh what, what's called the super added principium quo the the principle by which we act something completely above the exigencies of nature given to us in our justification, completely gracious, completely above our natural faculties. There is absolutely no way by our own power or cooperation that we can bring this about. It is completely through the working of God in the soul by grace, where we, wherein we come into the divine life. So if, if, don't, don't pull this garbage with us. Do not. We're, we're, it, he, he's taking us for absolute idiots. I mean, come on. It's, it's, it's obvious with any sort of cursory reading of a Catholic uh, manual in, in, in low side, in the low side of grace. You read any de gratia, you're going to, you're going to see that this, this type of argumentation is just, uh, it, it, it's completely ignorant of the, the truth of the Catholic teaching on grace. It's completely of God's grace. So I'm going to continue it's probably going to get worse than this. This is the great debate between monergism and synergism. Monergism, the belief that there is only one power that saves completely, and that is God's. Amen, as St. John of the Cross and St. Thomas Aquinas say, if that's how you're defining monergism, then yeah, sure. There's only one power that saves after a manner of, of efficient, final, and formal cause, which is God and our instruments of his quality, the working of grace. Okay, great. I'm glad we have that. Synergism is the common belief of the religions of men. There are two powers or forces, God and man, cooperate together to accomplish the work of salvation. It is the great battle between those who say God's grace is absolutely necessary, but in and of itself, insufficient outside the operation of the creature's will. This is just silly. There's entire loci 
on uh, on efficacious grace. So I'm going to bring up uh, Gary Goulagrange because he has a really good section in reality on this on this problem. Okay, it's on the EWTN. Uh, his reality, I think it's the last chapter. Yep, chapter 59, efficacious grace. Chapter 59. Yeah, completely is completely uh, garbage. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. It's, it's almost impossible to get through 10 seconds of a James White video without having to stop to correct him on something. So on, uh, on efficacious grace, revelation makes it clear that many graces by God do not produce the effect, at least the entire effect towards which they are given, while other graces do produ uh, produce this effect. Graces of the first kind are called sufficient graces. They give the power to do good without bringing the good act itself to pass, since man resists their attraction. And notice, both of us, Protestants, Catholics alike, they have merely sufficient grace, which is ineffic inefficacious to bring about the effect. I'm sure James White, if not, he would be a really weird sort of Protestant, would agree that there is some sort of, uh, there's some sort of inefficacious in general uh, natural grace, which is given to man. The existence of such grace is absolutely uh, certain, whatever Jansenists say. Without these graces, God, contrary to his mercy and justice, would command the impossible. Further, since without these graces, sin would be inevitable, sin would no longer be sin and could not justly be punished. Judas could have really here and now avoided his crimes, as could the impenitent robber who died near a savior. Now notice, graces of the second kind are called efficacious. So this is the type of grace, which is saving grace. They not only give us real power to observe the precepts, but carry us to act on to actual obedience, as in the case of the penitent robber. Notice, it's a carrying along. It's an actualization of a certain, um, of a certain potency. The existence of actual graces is affirmed equivalently in numerous uh, passages of scripture. Ezekiel says, for example, I will give you a new heart and put in you a new spirit. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit on you and bring you about to follow my commandments and observe and, uh, and practice my laws. Again, the psalmist says, all that God wills, he does. The word wills must here be understood to meaning all that God wills, not conditionally, but absolutely. Thus, he wills a man's free conversion, that of Assyrius, uh, e.g. at the prayer of Esther. That God changed the wrath of the king into mildness. God's omnipotence is, in these texts, assigned as a reason for the infallible efficacy of God's decree. The Second Council of Orange against the Semi-Pelagians, after citing many of these texts, says of the efficaciousness of grace, Whenever we do good, God in us and with us brings our work to pass. Hence, there is a grace which not only gives real power to act rightly, a power which exists also in him who sins, but which produces the good act. Even while far from excluding our free cooperation, it arouses rather this cooperation and carries us on to consent. There's this sort of, uh, there, there's this actualization of cooperation. Cooperation is not something that we uh, somehow um, bring up about in ourselves, but it is something which is caused as an instrument from God's power. St. Augustine thus explains these texts, same text, God by his power most hidden and most efficacious turns the king's heart from wrath to mildness. The great majority of older theologians, Augustinians, Thomas, Scotus, Hold that the grace called efficacious is efficacious of itself because God wills it to be so, not because we will it to be so, by an act of consent foreseen by God. God, uh, um, not because we will it to be so, by an act of, uh, not, 
not because we will it to be so by an act of consent foreseen by God. Sorry, that comma was confusing me. God is not a mere spectator, but the author of salvation. How is grace self-efficacious? Uh, here, these older authors differ. Some recur to the divine motion called pre-motion, some to what they call ver uh, victorious delectation, some to a kind of attraction. But amid all differences, they agree that grace is of itself efficacious. Okay. Again, not rocket science. Okay. So I'm going to put it back up. I'm going to check the chat. James White Cringe, Militant Thomas King. Thanks, dude. Have you read through uh, some Genesis book? I only skimmed through a few parts. I, uh, I've read through the first few chapters, but I didn't. I actually didn't really, didn't really like it. The meritorious cause is his most blessed only begotten, our Lord Jesus Christ, who when we were enemies for the exceeding charity with where, wherewith he loved us, merited justification for us by his most holy passion on the wood of the cross and made satisfaction for us unto God. It, it, this, this isn't difficult. Hi, can I come in? Uh, uh, I don't know, dude. Oh, and there was an Orthodox dude in the chat trolling me. That's the same one where uh, I asked him to post deadlift and then he, he just completely dodged the question. Trolled. Okay, let's continue. And those who say God's grace is not only necessary, but absolutely, positively sufficient. Of course, we all say it. As well, capable of saving the creature man all to the glory of God. Again, everybody says it. This evening, I will prove to any person that I believe is willing to hear what the Bible says clearly that it is inarguably monergistic. The Bible's message is that God saves. It teaches that God saves and God saves alone. It's so true. It does not teach God saves conditionally. It does not teach God tries but fails so true. to save. It does not teach that God starts salvation, but man ultimately completes it. So true. The proof of this will be seen in what the Bible teaches about grace, what it teaches about faith, and what it teaches about justification itself. Now, in previous debates against such apologists as Father Mitchell Pacwa and Jerry Matitix, I have presented a biblical case based upon the meaning of such terms as justification, faith, imputation, and the like. Tonight, I wish to add to the body of argumentation, not by simply repeating what I have said before and by repeating what is already in print, but to argue my point on the basis of the impossibility of the contrary. That is, I will prove that we are justified by grace through faith alone, without human merit, by proving the contrary to be quite simply impossible. I do this because, first of all, it helps to focus the attention of both Protestant and Catholic alike upon the central issues. And notice I said both Protestant and Catholic, because many who call themselves Protestants today are firmly synergistic in their view. And secondly, because it adds to the body of argumentation that has already been presented in previous debates. Now, fundamentally... This, this is why I think this... This video, the, this is why I'm reviewing this one. This is why I think this video is the most important because James White is not making a positive presentation of his view. What he is doing is he is refuting what he thinks is Rome's view. So this just completely shows that James White has no idea what he's talking about. The proof that man is saved solely by the grace of God through faith without works of human merit is proven by 
five points. And yes, that is, of course, significant for me that I have five points to present to you. So funny. Number one, the scriptural fact that every action of salvation is undertaken as a free and sovereign act of the divine king, God himself. Yeah. Obviously. Said otherwise. Do we need, do we need to go back again to St. Thomas and Prima Secundae of the necessity of grace, where he shows in, in every single aspect of salvation that grace is absolutely necessary? Look, I will, I will even... This one is even, even better right here. Let me share my screen. Article six goes hard. Whether a man by himself without the external aid of grace can even prepare himself for grace. It is written, no man can come to me except the father who hath sent me draw him. But if man could prepare himself, he would not need to be drawn by another. Hence, man cannot prepare himself without the uh, help of grace. I answer that the preparation of the human will for good is twofold. The first whereby it is prepared to operate rightly and to enjoy God. And this preparation of the will cannot take place without the habitual gift of grace, which is the principle of meritorious works, as said above. This is completely above the exigencies of nature. As St. Thomas uh, says in Article 1 here, it's a what's called a superadded form. Just as water cannot heat of itself without the flame of fire heating it, so also can we uh, not even uh, work in the life of grace without the without the grace of God heating us, super added form. The second, there is a second way in which the human will may be taken to be prepared for the gift of grace. Now, in order that man prepare himself to receive this gift, it is not necessary to presuppose any further habitual gift in the soul. Otherwise, we should go into infinity. But we must prepare a gratuitous help of God who moves the soul inwardly or inspires a good wish. For in these two ways do we need divine assistance, as said above. Now that we need the help of God to move us is manifest. And then he's going to uh, go on and prove that. So, yeah, we have what's called an actual grace and we have what's called habitual grace. We can't even prepare ourselves for grace. It's completely grace moving within us. This isn't, this isn't a terribly difficult concept. This is seen in Romans 8, 28 through 34, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. This will be my key proof, and I do not believe that it is refutable. Secondly, the biblical fact that grace, to be grace, must be free and cannot be joined with human actions that are in any way, shape, or form meritorious. This is seen clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Romans 4, 16, and Romans 11, 6. And even when we're, when we're speaking of grace... Um... I mean, when we're speaking of merit, uh, he he's he's thinking of merit in a completely wrong way, because when it comes to uh, what uh, a, a merit is, merit is some sort of gift, which is which is due to another. Let, let's say uh, there, there's a certain relation of, of justice, which is existing. It could be of a fittingness or it can be of contract. Those, those are the two types. Now, when we use the word merit in Catholic theology, we actually use it in, uh, in, in an analogous yet not completely proper sense uh, when it comes to relating it to, to uh, the, the human level of merit. Uh, merit is something which, uh, for example, Turretin, uh, who is a Protestant uh, uh, theologian, will speak of as, as covenantal. 
So God binds himself to, uh, to as St. Augustine says, crown his own gifts. This is something not even absent from, from the Protestant tradition. We're speaking of merit in that sense. It, it, again, it's just the, these are just a bunch of cheap shots. Uh, that, that's all this is. It's, it's a great big cloud of rhetoric. And who, who said it? So how much of White's remarks are just blustering rhetoric? All of it. Every single last bit. Every single piece, every single word is just mere rhetoric. Thirdly, the scriptural fact that saving faith, not the dead, non-salvific words only faith that James decries in James 2, 14 through 24, but the saving faith that Paul speaks of as justifying us before God, that that faith is a gift of God given to his elect people as part of his work of regeneration. Since yes, yes. Exactly. And, he, and you notice he understands this uh, distinction between uh, fides formata and then uh, fide, uh, fides informatis. Is it? I, I feel like I always mess up the Latin, but uh, between formed and unformed faith. He understands the distinction. Unformed faith is a mere assent to the propositions of the gospel, what the uh, Reformed will classically, and I think it's the Lutheran tradition, will classically call merely historical faith does not justify. Whereas there's justifying faith, which is a faith which is formed by charity. It's a living faith. That is the type of faith which justifies. It, it, these, these aren't difficult concepts. You don't need, you don't need to really, you don't need to go to crazy places to figure this out. It's, uh, it's, it's really all over our authors. And then faith itself being a gift, we honestly, Honestly, we have an even more gracious view of faith than Protestants have. And I'll tell you why. The reason, and I'm about to pull up again, 109 is a huge, huge, um, is going to be a huge loci for this. For us, faith is something which is absolutely supernatural, something above the exigencies of every created nature, angelic and human. When it comes to faith, faith is a participation in God's knowledge of himself, which eventually culminates in the beatific vision. It is not anything which can be uh, brought about by our own, uh, by the exigencies of our own nature. Absolutely a gift of God. So I'm going to read in Article 1, whether without grace man can know any truth. So I answer that to know truth is a use or an act of light. According to the apostle, all that is made manifest is light. Now, every use implies movement, taking movements broadly, as to call thinking and willing movements, as is clear from the philosopher. Now, in corporeal things, we see that for movement, there's required not only the form, which is the principle of that movement or action. And remember, that's going to be that principium quo, uh, that principle by which um, the, the, uh, the thing whereby we act. But there's also required the motion of the first mover. So there's going to be a twofold natural necessity of divine light when it comes to uh when it comes to knowing truth even on the natural level now the first mover is uh in the order of corporeal things is the heavenly body and so no matter how perfectly far as heat it will not bring about um alteration except by the motion of the heavenly body but it is clear that all corporeal movements are traced back to the motion of the heavenly body as to the first corporeal movement so all motion 
both corporeal and spiritual, and spiritual is talking about the act of the uh, of the will and intellect, are traced back to the simple first mover, who is God. Hence, no matter how perfect a corporeal spiritual nature is supposed to be, it cannot proceed to act unless it is moved by God. But this motion is according to the plan of his providence, not by the necessity of nature, as the motion of the heavenly body. Uh, so this is going to be when it comes to the movement of potency to act, when it comes to the action of our intellect. That needs two things, even on the natural level, not, not even getting on the supernatural level of, of, um, of faith, which we're speaking of here. It needs the movement of the first mover. So there's a certain efficient causality when it comes to the rendering from potency to act of our intellect. And then there's also, secondly, that infused form, which is called uh, the agent intellect, a certain natural light infused into our intellect, whereby we are able to, uh, through our senses, gain some knowledge of things outside of our intellect. And this is from God. This is something which is through uh, divine causality. Now, not only is every motion from God as the first mover, but all formal perfection is from him as from first act. And thus the act of the intellect or of any created being whatsoever depends upon God in two ways. First, in as much as it is from him, that it has the form whereby it acts. So remember the principium quo, the, the principle by which we act, which is going to be um, a certain intellectual light. And second, second in as much as it is moved by him to act. So there's going to be a certain efficient causality. So this is, again, we're not even talking about right now uh, the virtue of faith. This is just on the natural level. Now, every form bestowed on created things by God has power for a determined act. So when it comes to our intellects, we, our intellects, are bestowed with certain light by God to act to a certain level. And we cannot jump above that level, which it can bring about in proportion to its proper endowment and beyond which it is powerless, except by a super added form. There's going to be something which has to be super added to go beyond the exigencies of our nature. As water can only heat when heated by the fire. And thus human understands a form, viz. in the intelligible light, which is agent intact, which of itself is sufficient for knowing certain intelligible things, viz. those that we can come to know through our senses. So notice, this is where we're still on the level of senses, of sensory data, of natural things. This needs some sort of form, which is the form of intelligible light. But we're going to, in order to even go beyond that, we're going to be uh, need another form, a super added form. The human intellect cannot know higher intelligible things, such as um, the type of knowledge, which is uh, from faith, rather than the certain abstractive knowledge um, through natural theology. The human intellect cannot know higher intelligible things unless it be perfected by a stronger light. Viz, the light of faith or prophecy, which is called the light of grace, inasmuch as it is added to nature. So this is completely above the exigencies of our natural faculties. Does this sound, any of this sound like what James White is saying we believe? Any of it? No, none of it. Hence, we must say that for the knowledge of any truth whatsoever, man needs divine help, that the intellect may be moved by God to act, but he does not need a new light added to his natural light, and this natural light, which is the principium quo, the form by which he acts, in order to know the things, uh, truth in all things, but only in some that surpass his natural knowledge, such as faith. And yet at times God miraculously instructs some by his grace in things that can be known by natural reason, even as he sometimes brings about miraculous what nature can do. Again, none of this sounds like what James White is saying we believe. 
absolutely none of it. None. Exactly. Prima Secunde, 109, 2 through 10. Because of original sin, that man can do no supernaturally good act without the special and absolutely free gift of God, namely to love God, fulfill his commandments, gain eternal life, prepare for salvation, to rise from sin, avoid sin, and to per persevere from the end of life in faith. And this is just TM summarizing uh, um, Prima Secunde question 109. This is just what St. Thomas says. And this is just what the theologians are going to say in their Tractatus de Gratia. This isn't rocket science. This isn't difficult. You just have to read our authors. Okay. So uh, perhaps you can answer this later, but what is your best scriptural support for the teaching of an increase in justice? Is the parable of the talents a good support? I will answer that later. I will start it so I don't forget. Okay, I'm gonna reshare my screen and we can continue. Oh my, we are only like six minutes into a 30 minute thing. So I will set this baby to one and a half speed. And sorry, those who are listening to the replay. I'll promise I will try to not stop every three, three seconds, which is so difficult. And saving faith is a gift that cannot be meritorious in and of itself, nor can it function as the ground of justification. Instead, when the newly regenerated person believes, God upon that exercise of faith, pronounce them just on the basis, not of what they have done, but upon the basis of what Christ has done in their place. The Bible teaches faith is a gift in such passages as Philippians 1.29 and Ephesians 2.8-9. Fourth, the biblical fact that justification is plainly taught to be a past tense action, something we look back upon in Romans 5.1, a point-in-time event that is said to be accomplished by God's grace, Christ's blood, and faith in him. Yeah, we can use justification in the sense of a past act, whereby we're brought into the state of justice. As St. Thomas talks about, and I promise I won't pull it up to read the whole thing, it's in uh, De Veritate, um, either Q30 or Q31, um, and it's going to be Article 1, um, where he speaks about justification. It should be pretty obvious if you could just go to Isidore and look at De Veritate. He talks about justification as a, as a what's called a uh, motion. It's from one, one terminus, the, um, the terminus aquo to the terminus ad quem, the, print, uh, the, the terminus from which and the terminus to which. It's a motion from sin to justice there's that motion and that movement and that's that's the sense in which we are talking about justification in the past tense this fact is established by paul in romans 4 and any teaching that says that justification is a process in abraham's life or anyone else's turns paul's entire argument on its head and makes the apostle self-contradictory when we interpret the apostles so as to refute their own arguments we are obviously misinterpreting them and the fifth point that i present to you is the scriptural fact that the righteousness that is the possession of the believer is not his own righteousness, but is instead the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. So true, because, again, um, the the justice in which we have in our state of justification is a certain creative participation in the righteousness of Christ. It isn't um, some sort of um, bubbling up from within us. No, it's just as St. John of the Cross explained. It is... We are as the burning log and the Holy Spirit is as the fire and the, the, the flames are that there's certain acts. They are all divine and the habits are all divine because they are all the working of God, not of ourselves, only ourselves instrumentally.
This is seen in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made to be sin in our place, in our behalf. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in the fact that it is Christ himself who has become our righteousness in such passages as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Yeah. Uh, for, let's, let's just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Corinthians 1, 30. Nope, uh, one, I said 120. Because again, this isn't this isn't uh, rocket science. So St. Thomas's commentary on Pauline commentaries, First Corinthians 1, and then let's go on to verse 30. And then the, uh, I will share my screen so you all can see it. Oh, here's a good question while, uh, before I pull that up. Why don't Catholics use the term imputation? What really is even the difference between, uh, besides semantics? So actually Catholics uh, do use the term imputation uh, in, in the sense of a negative imputation. Uh, that is a certain uh, forgiveness or remission of sin on the basis of Christ's um, sacrifice. That, that, is, that is what we mean by imputation. And um, I guess, very technically, although we have to be careful of this language, we can use the language of a positive imputation in that uh, St. Uh, St. John Henry Newman describes his lectures on justification. There is that uh, it's just like um, when you think about it, the relation of creation. Uh, God says, let there be light. And there was light. So there's a declaration of something existing and then it comes about. In an analogous way, when it comes to the creation of justice in us, God says, let him be just. There's a certain declaration of righteousness. And then we are made just by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so in that sense, we can speak of a positive imputation, but usually we leave it to a to a, to a negative imputation uh, or, or a certain remission um, that is uh, on, on the mercy of God on the basis of the uh, sacrifice of Christ. So now let's get to the... Because I kind of do want to camp out in a lot of these verses and see and just show how Thomas Aquinas interprets them. And it's not at all how he uh, how James White is saying um, that we interpret these passages. So this is going to be in number 69. Nice. Uh, but of him uh, are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and justice and sanctification and redemption. So let's go down to 69 where he interprets this. Oh, wait, I want to see how long this is. Oh, it's only three paragraphs. Okay. Uh, first, he indicates who deserves the honor for the world's salvation, which is procured by the ministry of preaching. He says, you have been called not by the great of this world, but by the lowly. Consequently, your conversion should not be attributed to man, but to God. In other words, but of him are you, i.e. by God's power. You are called in Christ Jesus, i.e. joined to him by grace, by grace, where is workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 71. Then he shows how God supplies for the deficiency of his preachers by means of Christ. First, as to the lack of wisdom, when he has said who, namely Christ, is made unto us who preach the faith, and by us unto who all the faithful. Wisdom, because by adhering to him who is the wisdom of God, by partaking of him through grace, Notice it's only by partaking of him through grace that we have wisdom. We have been made wise, and this is our God who gave Christ to us and few us to him. As it uh, says in John, no man can come to me except the father who has sent me draw him. 
This is your wisdom and understanding of the sight of the nations. Second, as to their lack of power, he says, and justice, which is called a breastplate because of its strength. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate. Now, Christ is said to have been made righteousness for us inasmuch as we are made righteous by faith. It is said in Romans, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believes. Third, as to the lack of nobility, we don't really need to, um, need to go into that again. Yeah, we agree. Your point? Uh, and, and I feel I feel like he's just missing all of those actual differences that we have in order to score some cheap shots rhetorically. It's just really sad. Like this, enti- this entire 30 minutes is just one big waste. I don't even know why I'm reviewing it. It is impossible then to add to that righteousness, for it is a perfect righteousness, nor would it be necessary to do so, nor can that righteousness that is ours be destroyed or soiled. This is the foundation of Paul's teaching that we have peace, true shalom with God, our Lord Jesus Christ, a true and lasting peace, not a temporary ceasefire. I would now like to take just a few moments for purposes of contrast to present a summary statement from Mr. St. Genesis' book, Not by Faith Alone, and I quote, justification is a process. The process comprises both the infusion of righteousness into the individual and God's recognition of that righteousness. These two facets of justification are like two strands of a rope, intertwining and interweaving with each other. It is the action of God's grace that initiates and accomplishes the process. God makes the first move in the life of the individual through prevenient grace, i.e. that which comes before. As the individual responds to this grace, both by faith and works, he attains a specific righteous quality in the eyes of God by merely responding to God's call and continuing to respond in faith, hope, and love. God can look upon man's faith and works as meritorious and with the potential to gain righteousness because God is not viewing them from the system of uncompromising law, but through the eyes of grace. It is the atonement of Christ that has made this new view of man possible. Thus, grace is both the lens through which God views us and the infused quality we receive from God to help us maintain his gracious view. At each point that God gives the individual his grace and he responds to that grace, one can say that he is justified in God's eyes. God gives both, God gives both a justifying quality, infused grace, and continually recognizes and pronounces the individual just because he has the quality of righteousness within him. Hence, to justify refers both to the making righteous of the individual and the recognition of that same righteousness in God's eyes, end quote, pages 333 through 334. Yeah, I don't know whether I, I like that description by Robertson Genesis. You can just compare it to the description I've given so far. It's a, it's a bit loosey-goosey, if you ask me. Now, I emphasize to everyone here this evening that this view involves the complete rejection of everything that I will attempt to prove biblically this evening. While God begins this process graciously, this is clearly a synergistic viewpoint. God's grace makes salvation possible, but it does not guarantee it to any particular individual. Again, the, the grace, of pers- it's, it's completely um, to the grace of perseverance uh, guaranteed to those who persevere. Now, there are certain uh, people who are elected not into perseverance, and uh, God does not um, continually uphold them in grace. The death of Christ does not provide a perfect righteousness that is imputed to a believer, but instead provides a new way of looking at man through the eyes of grace. Again, and this is kind of funny because has, has, has James White ever, ever heard of, um, of a sort of covenantal righteousness where God is, God is binding himself um, uh, to, to not to, as, as Genesis will say, the uncompromising view of law, but to a new way of looking. Uh, th- this is, this is something that is that is uh, accepted in the uh, in, in the reform view, at least generally speaking, when it comes to when it comes to God's covenanting with man 
in order to accept certain uh, tainted works that are not uh, because there's there can be no um, there, there, there can be no obligation of God to man. He only only binds himself by his promises. Not that there are uh, not that in itself. No, nobody uh, they, they should have their tongues cut out if anybody said in itself that there was um, some sort of uh, in, intrinsic uh, merit whereby it demands of, of God a certain gift. No, 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 no. That's that's not what anybody is saying. That would be that'd be literally impossible. It'd be stupid. Not even the angels can can uh, demand that. Righteousness is infused into man, and God then suddenly recognizes the righteousness he himself has infused into the believer. This is surely what is meant by the Catholic Catechism when it says, quote, the merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration. Again, and this is, this is completely of God's grace. So that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God, then to the faithful. That's section 2008. Yeah, and that, that makes it seem like it's kind of like the, the, the two ropes pulling the ship view. But no, all, all, the, all the catechism is saying is that there's a certain instrumentality uh, to our will and the working of, of divine grace. As, as St. Augustine says, um, he who has made, made uh, well, what's the famous quote that people say? He who has made um, you without you will not uh, just save you without you or so, so, some, something like that. But it's it's only after the manner of, of an instrument. If, if it was af after the manner of some sort of uh, efficient principle cause, uh, some sort of meritorious cause, and that would be, uh, that'd be very silly. This will be the key point in the debate tonight. I assert that the claim that God's glory is somehow safeguarded by saying, well, it all flows from his grace anyways. So saying that we merit anything by our works is not really to deny grace, nor to deny the glory of God. I assert that that doesn't work. Wait, I missed that. To the grace of God, then to the faithful. That's section 2008. This will be the key point in the debate tonight. I assert that the claim that God's glory is somehow safeguarded by saying, well, it all flows from his grace anyways. So saying that we merit anything by our works is not really to deny grace, nor to deny the glory of God. I assert that that doesn't work. And again, uh, as, as a sort of argumentum ad hominem to, to James White, I again, let, let's say you have just a completely like um, weird 17th century, like super duper antinomian Baptist uh, sort of views of salvation. They can say, no, God does not use absolutely any instrument when it comes to when it comes to salvation none at all zero zip that's that's the only way you can consistently hold this critique that any sort of instrument uh is not going to safeguard uh god's um god's glory it, it it's just it's just ridiculous because everybody admits everybody admits it he admits it we admit it everybody does i say that adding man's works even when they are dependent upon move grace Again, it's not just an initial movement of grace to continuing upholding, as as St. Thomas clarifies. So that it is man's works, man's freedom, man's will that finally determines whether God can or cannot save a particular man or woman is to use sophistry to rob God of his glory. <laughs> Speaking of sophistry. And place man in charge of salvation itself. And I believe that's what we have in the Catholic Catechism, section 2008. This is the issue we will face all evening long. Is grace necessary, but insufficient in and of itself? Oh, my gosh. Everybody says grace is sufficient in itself. Or is it both necessary and sufficient? Yes, it's necessary and sufficient, James White. I believe the Bible's answer is very, very clear. So true, King. 
And let me present to you my biblical evidence for the five points that I offer to you this evening. First of all, justification is an act of God made with reference to one of his elect based upon the work of Christ in their behalf. If you have your scriptures, please turn to Romans chapter 8. And I read in your hearing verses 28 through 34. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously or freely give us all things? Yeah. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen, against so God's true. elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What do we see in these verses? Justification, my friends, is as certain in the life of the elect as any other elements in what is called the golden chain of redemption. Predestination, calling, justification, and glorification are all the acts of God. When this passage says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined, that term means to choose to enter. Okay. Uh, before he continues with his sophistry, let's go. Let us go to St. Thomas's reading of Romans 8, 28 through 32. So it is Romans commentary, 8, 28 through 32. Predestination of the saints. Um, and I'm going to... Yeesh, this is actually kind of a long section. Okay. Okay. Actually, he just spends a lot of time talking in the beginning. So let's just go to 701. Okay. So then he proves what he said with the following proof when he says for whom he foreknew no one can advance those whom god advances but god advances the predestined who love him therefore god nothing can harm them but everything works for the good first therefore he proves the minor premise namely god advances them second namely that nothing can be harmful to those advanced by god by what shall be uh, we say then in regard to the first, he does two things. First, he mentions things that refer to the advancement of the saints from all eternity. Second, those that occur in time, whom he predestined. First, there presents two things, namely foreknowledge predestination. When he says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, some say that predestination here is taken for the preparation which occurs in time, during which God prepares the saints for grace. They say this is in order to distinguish foreknowledge from predestination. But closer examination shows that they both are eternal, but they differ in notion. For, as was stated above, predestination implies the mental preordaining of things which a person intends to do. From, from all eternity, God has predestined the benefits which he intends to give the saints. Hence, predestination is eternal. But foreknowledge differs conceptually from predestination, because foreknowledge implies only the knowledge of future things, whereas predestination implies causality in regard to them. Consequently, God has foreknowledge even of sins, but predestination bears on salutary goods, and so on and so forth. So... trying to figure out what part I want to continue. He just goes on about sonship here. Uh, 
Uh, hence, second, he mentions uh, justification when he says, in whom he called them, he also justified by infusing grace. They are justified by his grace as a gift. Although this justification is frustrated in certain persons because they do not persevere to the end, in the predestined, it is never frustrated. Uh, third, he mentions glorification when he adds, them he also glorified. And this in two ways, namely by the growth in virtue and grace, by exaltation and glory. And then he um, talks about never being able to suffer any loss. Okay, so let's go back to this. Enter into relationship with. When used of God in the New Testament, it never means to know what someone will do. Only persons in the New Testament are foreknown by God, not actions. All the predestined and only the predestined are called. This is the effectual calling that the Apostle Paul speaks of many times in his letters. All those who are called and only those who are called are justified. This action is an action of God, no more dependent for final fulfillment upon the works or merit of men than predestining or calling. All who are justified are also glorified. This shows us that justification... And again, he's adding the word all in there because it doesn't say all those who are justified or glorified. It says those who are justified or glorified. I think I think really um, the argument is... Um, the, the, the way the way in which it is uh, because it's a it's something which is coming from coming from a position of of comfort uh saint paul is is trying to comfort them he's not excluding any sort of um apostasy which is present but what he is saying is he's saying that um that it is uh god's working in them uh through to the end and it's uh, it, it's something of God's uh, gracious gift working through it. Yes, of course, but he's not. He's uh, the main point of it isn't um, to to the absolute exclusion of any sort of um, falling away. It's final. It is perfect, and none. I repeat that none who are truly justified can fail to be glorified. We also see here the forensic element, the legal element. God the Father acts as judge pronouncing the sentence of not guilty upon those who believe in Jesus Christ. The judge has delivered over his own son in behalf of his elect people. Therefore, no charge can be made against those people. Rome says the charge of mortal sin and venial sin can be made against the believer. And uh, as St. Thomas says uh, in, in that brief passage that we read, although I probably should have, should have uh, chosen more select passages. Sorry about that. Read it on your own if you really, um, if you really want it on Aquinas.cc or on Isidore or something. But when it comes to uh, the the charging of God's elect, that has to do with uh, the the first has to do with God's um, sort of eternal um, uh, working when it comes to through the elect, and then second the the second part has to do with God's temporal keeping. So when it comes to of those who will not bring charges against uh, God's elect, that has to do um, not with God himself. It has to do with um, those in the world uh, bringing charges against him, such as uh, Satan and his angels um, when it comes to ac accusing the brethren. But it, again, this doesn't have anything to do with uh, whether somebody can or cannot uh, fall away. The Bible says God justifies them and no one can condemn them because Christ intercedes on their behalf. If you believe in a synergistic view of salvation, whether you are Protestant or Catholic, 
whether you are Protestant or Catholic. If you believe in a synergistic view of salvation that requires man's assistance, man's works, man's merits, man's actions, where does that view fit in Romans 8, 28 through 34? In regards to the second point, grace, to be true grace, must be free. And so true. And is never joined with human works or merit. Paul Never joined with human works. Again, you're going to say that grace has some sort of instrumentality through faith. Why can't, like, like why, why are you allowed to join some sort of instrumental cause? But we, we're not allowed to. Said in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. There is something about that very word that does not allow the mixture of anything in the way of human work or merit. So true. Just as St. Thomas Aquinas says in his commentary in Romans, it is not by works of justice that we are saved, but by those infused virtues of justice. There is good reason why Paul's words to the Ephesians, known to us all, I hope, have been so often quoted here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. Grace is free. It admits no man. Okay, and then I think I think Thomas's commentary on Ephesians 2.8 is, is really helpful. Because I was I was shocked myself when I when I first when I first read it. This isn't the uh, the typical sort of explanation you get of Catholic views of justification, which is a bad thing. This I think this is a large reason why um, why there is these sort of presentations popular uh, from James White because he is refuting what somebody's saying. It's not what the the theologians say, but it's somebody. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God, not of works that no man uh, may glory. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and good works, which uh, God has prepared that we should walk in them. Now the apostle was recounting above the blessing of God, by which we have been freed from sin. He inserted that we have been saved by Christ's grace. Now he intends to prove this. He makes two points concerning it. First, he sets down his intention. Second, he clarifies the point in question, and that not of yourselves. I rightly declare, he says of the first, by whose grace you were saved. And indeed, I still confidently say for in the place of because, because by grace you are saved. By the grace of God, I am what I am, being justified freely by his grace. For to be saved is the same as to be justified. Salvation implies a freedom from dangers. Hence, man's perfect salvation will be in eternal life when he will be immune from all dangers, as a ship is said to be safe when it is arrived at the ports. Men received the hope of this salvation when they are justified from sin in the present and thus are referred to as saved, for we are saved by hope. But this salvation of grace is by faith in Christ. In the justification of an adult who has sinned, the movement of faith towards God coincides with the infusion of grace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, being justified, therefore, by faith. We are at peace with God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he next says, and that not of yourselves, he clarifies what he has spoken of. First, regarding faith, which is the foundation of the whole spiritual edifice. Second, regarding grace, at, for we are uh, his workmanship. He eliminates two errors concerning the first point. The first is that, since he has said we are saved by faith, anyone can hold the opinion that faith itself originates within ourselves, and that to believe is determined by our own wishes. This is what St. Thomas calls an error, but what James White calls Catholic doctrine. Therefore, to abolish this, he says, uh, and not of yourselves. Free will is inadequate for the act of faith, since the contents of faith are above human reason. Matters too great for human understanding have been shown to you, 
no one can know what pertains to God except the Spirit of God. That a man should believe, therefore, cannot occur from himself, unless God gives it according to what it is written. Who could ever have known your will? Have you not given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from above? For this reason, he adds, for it is a gift of God, namely faith itself. For you have been granted for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. To another, faith is given in the same spirit. The second error he rejects is that anyone can believe that faith is given by God to us on the merit of our preceding actions. So again, faith is not given on the merit of our preceding actions. To exclude this, he adds, not of preceding works that we merited at one time to be saved. For this is the grace, as we mentioned above, and according to which is written. If by grace, it is not now by works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. He follows with the reason why great God saves man by faith without any preceding merits, that no man may glory in himself, but refer all the glory to God, not for our sake, Yahweh, not for our sake, but for the sake of your name, display your glory because of your kindness, because of your faithfulness. That no flesh should glory in his sight. It is due to uh, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, justice, sanctification, redemption. Notice many of the same texts that James White is quoting. Next, as for we are his workmanship, he clarifies what he said regarding grace. Concerning this, he does two things. First, he clarifies the infusion of grace. Very important. Second, he declares the predestination of grace at which God is prepared. There are two essential characteristics of grace, which we which have been already spoken of. The first of these is that which what exists through grace is not present in man through himself or by himself, but from the gift of God. Again, this is absolutely not how James White is saying that we believe. In reference to this, he states, for we are his workmanship, because whatever good we possess is not from ourselves, but from the actions of God. Know that the Lord is God. He has made us the almighty. Is not your father who created you, made you, and fashioned you? This is immediately linked to that which went before, that no man may glory, for we are his workmanship. Or it is joined with what is said above, for by grace you are. The second essential characteristic of grace is that it is not from previous work, which is expressed when he uh, adds created. To create anything is to produce it from nothing. Hence, when anyone is justified without preceding merits, it can be said to have been created as though made from nothing. This creative action of justification occurs through the power of Christ communicating the Holy Spirit. On this account, he adds, in Christ Jesus, that is, through Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but a new creation. Send forth your spirit, they are created anew. Um, moreover, not only are the habits of virtue and grace given to us, we are inwardly renewed through the Spirit in order to act uprightly. So not only habitual, but actual grace. Once he goes on in good works, since good works themselves are made possible to us by God, for you have been accomplished all that we have done. And then um, he's about to, to go on about predestination, but I think we all know St. Thomas. Okay, so let us continue. Oh my, we only have 12 minutes. We'll eventually finish. Extra of human works. Saving grace teaches us to live a godly life, Paul says in Titus chapter 2. But a godly life is never joined to the work of grace as any part of the basis of our salvation. The free sovereignty of God's grace by which we are saved fits perfectly with the gift of saving faith. As we will see with special clarity in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, saving faith by its very nature makes no claim upon God. It's Yeah, exactly. Nobody can make any claim upon God, except covenantally, which, again, 
we all agree on. It's no merit. It is an empty hand embracing the grace that nerves the very arm that lifts it toward God. The Holy Spirit breathes this truth through Paul when he writes these words, quote, Romans 4, 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Let me repeat that. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay, Romans 4, 16. And I hope you guys aren't getting annoyed by me. But I'm going to keep referencing back. Catholics are not interpreting it in the sense that you are saying. This is all just silly. 416. Therefore, it is of faith that according to grace, the promise may be firm to all the seed, not to only uh, which are of the law, but to also which are the faith of Abraham, uh, the father of us all. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Okay, so after showing that the promise made to Abraham and his seed was not fulfilled through the law, the apostle now shows that it is to be fulfilled through faith. In regard to this, he does three things. First, he shows through what such a promise is to be fulfilled. Second, in whom it is to be fulfilled. And third, by whom it is to be fulfilled. First, therefore, he concludes to this proposition, as it were, by division. For it seems necessary that the promise be fulfilled either by faith or by the law, but not by the law, because the promise would be abolished. Hence, he concludes. Oh, I'm back. I don't know how, how long I was gone. I don't think it was for too long. Sorry about that. My Wi-Fi just decided to die. He sent it at 514, and it's your internet pro provider is Protestant. So true, King. So true. Oh, Lil Wayne is watching. Look at that. And TM is uh, definitely short for Taylor Marshall. He also watches. Okay. I'm just going to continue. Sorry if you didn't... Uh, you didn't hear all that. My third point is time goes by very quickly. The Bible teaches that the faith that saves is a gift from God. Ephesians yes. 2, 8 through 9 tells us that Paul there speaks of all of salvation, including grace and faith is the gift of God. Yes. He told the Philippians that it had been granted to them or given to them to believe in Christ in Philippians 1, 29. Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12, 2. And so true. 2 Peter 1, 1 refers to the faith common to all Christians as one they had received from God. Yes. It is a common error of man to turn faith into a merely human thing rather than a divine ability so as to maintain final control over salvation and place it in the hands of man. 
Again, absolute supernaturality of faith. This was like a huge point with the relation of nature and grace in the Reformation. We actually have a higher view of uh, the inability of man, not even according to our natural capacities in a state of pure nature, would we be able to, uh, to have faith. The Bible leaves no room for boasting or pride by reminding us that even our faith is a gift from his hand. So true. And finally, I provide the evidence for points four and five, specifically that justification is something that is past tense to the believer, something that he or she looks back upon and that involves the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. I provide the evidence together by directing your attention to the key passage of scripture, Romans chapters three, four, and five, if you'll turn there. Oh, we're going to read all three chapters. This is direct teaching, direct presentation of doctrine. It is the single longest, most involved passage addressing how an ungodly man is justified before God. Listen to the words of Paul beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law of God has manifested, witness the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for whom? For all those who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned, whether you're Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift, being justified freely, how? By his grace, on what basis? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previous, the creation of his righteous at the present time, so that he, God, be just, and then look at this next phrase, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the God that I want to worship. So true, King. Is the God who is the justifier. That's his work. He is the justifier. And who does he justify? The one who has faith in Jesus. But then his boasting, Paul says, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Yeah. Man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's see where it, uh, St. Thomas is on this. Again. So 328, this is going to be, and notice St. Thomas is going to say something, which actually uh, might ruffle some, uh, some uh, Catholic answers, love and feathers right here, which we always love to see. <clears throat> then when he says, for we account, he shows how the Jews boasting is excluded by the law of faith, saying, for we, apostles, being taught the truth by Christ, account a man, whomsoever he be, whether Jew or Gentile, to be justified by faith. He cleansed their hearts by faith. And this is without the works of the law. Not only without the ceremonial works, which did not confer grace, but only signified it, but also without the works of the moral precepts as stated in Titus, not because of deeds done by us in justice. This, of course, means without works prior to becoming just, but not without works following it, because as stated uh, in James' faith, without works, i.e. subsequent works, is dead and consequently cannot justify. Again. And then uh, he actually uh, continues to... Um, I actually have to read 3.18 too. Then, when he says, or is he the God of Jews, only he manifests something he has presupposed, namely that the justice of faith stands in the same common relation to all. He had previously explained this with a uh, reason based on the material cause when he says that all have sinned and need the glory of God, i.e. they are sinners who need to be made just by the grace of God. 
But a proof based solely on the material cause is not enough because matter is not moved to a form by itself without an agent cause. Accordingly, he now presents a proof based on the agent cause, i.e. the justifier who is God. It's God who justifies. Now, it's manifest that uh, our God, it, uh, by justifying, saves those whose God he is, according to the psalm, our God is a God of salvation. But he is the God not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. Therefore, he justifies both. Okay. Sorry. I'm just trying to see whether there's anything relevant. But again, uh, this is getting uh, to be a little repetitive because James White keeps making the same mistakes and he's made the same mistakes last uh, 25 years. Then in chapter four, Paul explains exactly how this works and how this has always been the case by referring us to Abraham and listen to what he says. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to flesh is found for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but what? Not before God, not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, and listen closely to these next two verses. Now to the one who works. His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Those two passages must be understood. To the one who works, to the one who expects to receive a wage for his work. When he receives his wage, that's not grace. It's not a gift. If you go into work on Friday and your boss gives you your check, and you've worked your 40 plus hours for it, he's not gonna say, here's a gift for you. At least he better not, you might be in trouble if he does. That's what you are owed for your work. And so Paul says to the working one, what you get is not grace, but verse five, to the not working one, but to the believing one, that's saving faith. Saving faith does not try to add anything to Christ. Saving faith does not try to seek anything in the way of merit. Paul presents a complete dichotomy between a faith that would say, now that I've believed, you owe me something, and the faith that simply believes in who, and here's the next key phrase, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. It is not that God looks at a person and there's something he likes about that person and therefore gives grace to that person. It's the ungodly that the justifier justifies. And isn't that good news? So true. So let's see what St. Thomas says now. Because again, perfectly, perfectly okay to read this passage. We have pretty extensive biblical commentaries from the medieval era. Then when he says, now to him who works, he explains the Aphromed biblical citation as regards the words, it was reputed to him as justice. Two explanations of these words are given in the gloss. The first explanation, they are linked to the final reward concerning which first he shows how it's related to works. Second, how it's related to faith, but to him who works not. First, therefore, he says that to him who works, i.e. the works of justice, the reward of eternal recompense concerning which is said, behold, his reward is with him, is not reckoned as a gift only, but according to debt. Did you uh, not agree with me for a denarius? But on the contrary, to stay below the grace of God is everlasting life. And again, the sufferings at this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. Therefore, the reward is not made as due, but as a gift. The answer is that human works can be considered in two ways. In one way, according to the substance of the work, and considered this way, they do not have anything deserving that the reward of eternal glory should be given. So intrinsically, works, no. In another way, they can be considered according to their source, namely insofar as they are performed under God's impulse and accord with the intention of God who predestines. This could be instrumentally. And in this respect, the aforesaid reward is due to them by debt, because as is said below, for whoever led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, and if sons, heirs also. 
And in this, this is going to be a sort of covenantal righteousness that we can think of. God has bound himself to reward. And uh, then when he says, but to him, he shows how the eternal reward is related to faith, saying, but to him who works not outward works, for example, because he does not have time to work, as in the case of one who dies immediately after baptism, yet believes in him who justifies the ungodly, namely in God, of whom he says below God is he who justifies. His faith is reputed, i.e. faith alone without outward works. Hmm. Faith alone without outward works. To justice, so that in virtue of it, he is called just and receives the reward of justice just as if if he had done the works of justice as he said below with the heart we believe unto justice and this according to the purpose of the grace of god i.e according as god proposes to save men gratuitously to such as according to his purpose are called to be saints he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will and then he's going to um yeah He's going to explain it in a second way, but I don't think I really need to go over that. Again, this is getting abundantly obvious. James White doesn't know what he's talking about. Really, uh, if you want to, if you want to actually, James White, if you happen to watch this, if you want to actually um, make a presentation talking about the real distinction which is found between Protestant and Catholic views, don't go, go at it like this. Just don't. Uh, really, it's going to be a debate over the specific nature of saving faith, the faith which justifies whether um, a certain uh, trust in God or a certain uh, faith, uh, faith formed by love. And I'm, I'm not entirely uh, convinced yet that there that is a real difference. And then also it's going to uh, have to do with, I think, an insurmountable obstacle is going to be the formal cause, uh, whether it is something uh extrinsic or intrinsic and again uh, intrinsic doesn't mean uh, something which is wrought somehow by our own works of justice but it is going to be a certain uh gift of grace within us and it is that faith that is credited as righteousness and then in verses 6 through 80 quotes from david just as david also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom god credits righteousness apart from works blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered blessed is the man whose sin the lord will not take into account so true i ask you this evening who is the blessed man of romans 4 8. everyone's who's just the blessed man whose sin the lord will never impute to him will never take into account uh, no, no, no. that doesn't say never that says does not come on now dude how can God be just? He's talking about forgiveness. God. James White, sometimes he will, you, you saw it in, uh, in, in when we were reading Romans 8. He, he just adds in little words like all or never that actually uh, do make significant differences when it comes to how we're reading a certain text. And the Lord will never impute to him, will never take into account. How can God be just and never take someone's sin into account? Why? Because their sins were born in the body of his precious son on Calvary. In the place of his people that is the blessed man of romans 4 8 and that then leads us to the last two items to consider first paul in romans 4 then says now when was abraham justified before he received the sign of circumcision or afterwards his entire argument in romans chapter 4 is that abraham was justified before there was anything called law and if we do not see that abraham was justified at a point in time and that it is paul's interpretation that abraham was justified in genesis 15 6 and not at a point later in his life 
then Paul's entire argument collapses in a heap. We dare not interpret him in that way. And so finally, as time is fleeting, Paul then concludes by saying in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So true. That is why I'm here this evening. That is why we have done every one of the great debates. That is why Chris Arnzen spends so much time and effort putting these together. That is why I come across the United States. Because of the fact that we believe firmly, whether you disagree with us or not, we believe firmly that the greatest thing we can do for anyone is to introduce to them a gospel that brings true and lasting peace. So shalom. That is what lies behind Paul's words. And shalom means a wellness of relationship. And if anyone holds to a gospel that says that by an action that you undertake, that you can undo your righteous standing with God, if anyone teaches that you must in some way, shape, or form continue to, to prop up this righteousness and cause it to grow, that you have to go through sacraments to maintain it. Okay, this, argu this argument doesn't make any sense. No, no sense whatever. Do we have, I don't know, peace with Canada right now? Yes, of course. If Canada nukes the crap out of us and we go to war, did we never have peace? No, of course, we had peace. It's just, uh, it should be obvious to anybody. Terrible argument. That you can undo your righteous standing with God. If anyone teaches that you must in some way, shape, or form continue to, to prop up this righteousness and cause it to grow, that you have to go through sacraments to maintain it. No, no. The again, instruments of God's grace. Uh, again, I could just, I could just imagine, I could just imagine the IFB church that I grew up in, where they, um, every time you you would have somebody uh, go up and share about when a family member died, for example, who was outside of the faith, you would have people in the church who would say things like, "Oh, don't worry." Um, Maybe one time in their life, we can hope that somebody shared the gospel with them and they one time believed. What would James White say to that? Easy believism. That's what he would say. He would say that a faith which does not persevere is not true faith. So my uh, the, the people back at my church who were uh, who were IFB, they would respond and they would say, oh, James White. What kind of gospel you have where you have to prop up your relationship with God by having a continuous and lasting faith and not just a one-time sort of decision for God. Oh, you, 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 uh, you wicked Romanist James White. It, again, you, you, can do, you can do the uh, argumentum ad hominem all day against these sort of positions because if he really takes these, takes these arguments seriously because his arguments are usually pretty terrible, um, then they're just going to go against his own position because I grew up with people who would take these arguments against, against James White's position. Yeah. It's, it's not that hard. We, we can, we can admit instruments and such. And that in fact, even though right now you might be right with God, you could end up being an enemy of God in the future. That is not the peace that is promised in the pages of scripture. Why not? You're just asserting that. Like why? Why are you taking? Why are you? Why are you taking this sense of peace? There, there is no peace whatsoever in the entire world in our usage of the term peace that would last beyond some sort of breaking of covenant. None, whatsoever. Why take the most schizo possible reading and then acting like it's obvious to everybody but yourself? Why? And so it is our belief that the greatest act of love that we can show for anyone, even though the world mocks us and the world thinks that what we're doing here tonight is crazy. We believe that it is our duty to God and his truth and out of love for our fellow man 
to introduce you to a gospel that gives you peace, not because of anything you can do, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the fact that he bears all our sins in his body upon the tree, and that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us so that we can stand before God clothed in his perfect righteousness and not in anything else, and that is the only ground of peace that we can have. We are justified by grace through faith alone, without any acts of human merit. Thank you. Okay, that was that was painful. I guess I could take some questions. I will go back up to the check. Um, isn't it weird that James White appears to be younger today than he was 30 years ago? That's typical for men. Look at Elon Musk. Actually, that's true. Uh, but White adds words to his arguments like Luther, so he's keeping with the Protestant tradition. Come on now. There, there's actually some there's some medieval background to adding the word alone there in in Romans one, so won't be too too harsh on them for that. And again, we can use um, the phrase justification by faith alone. It's 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 a Catholic phrase. I, as a Protestant, hope that James White will stop saying he represents the Orthodox Reform, but rather he would take actual Orthodox Reform arguments from Turton for Migley, Zanke, etc. So true, King. So true. Reading those guys, so much more fun than these. Okay, so what's the instrumentality argument you keep bringing up that the Reform believe as well regarding justification? Well, the, the way that, the way that James, uh, James White seems to be arguing, and tell me if you guys think that I'm representing him correctly. Um, and and I'll I'll do the Taylor Marshall. Give me a thumbs up if you and comment below if you think I'm uh, think I'm representing him uh, correctly. Is that Rome? Uh, since we involve certain sacraments, since we involve um, uh, faith, which is formed by charity, um, involve certain acts of justice. Since we involve these uh, these various certain instruments of God's working of grace that we have utterly destroyed grace because grace does not have instruments but the, the the interesting part about this is that when james white talks about um his view of justification and especially the involvement of faith he says faith is the empty hand reaching up now i could just as easily respond to him james white you are having uh that that hand reaching up you are um, you are not being monergistic, James White. You are involving man, and you are uh, you have a damnable gospel, anathema. Um, get out of here. Uh, it, 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 he could uh, he could absolutely I could absolutely argue that way if I if I wanted to be to be sneaky, because if he's going to exclude all instruments whatsoever from from justification, then yeah, you have to exclude all instruments whatsoever from justification too. Okay, so is the infused righteousness we have our own sense and natural property all revert to with sins erased? No, 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 no. In infused righteousness is a certain. Um, so when it comes to sanctifying grace, we say that grace is above the exigencies of all nature, whether human or angelic. Faith, hope, and charity are completely above any sort of ability that we have in human nature. 
it's it's uh the it, we don't return back to a certain uh state of innocence rather we have a positive and abiding quality of of justice which is a uh participation in the divine life Um, and then to clarify what I mean by this is that if all our sins are erased, we by definition automatically become innocent in our human mode. So it's not just God's innocent we possess, but our own. Um, yeah, yeah, because with with the with the motion of justice, we are we 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 don't have um, we don't have that stain of sin in us because there's a certain rectitude which is brought about in our intellects and wills by grace. So yes, yes. And it's uh, it, it, in that way, yes, it is our own in that it is something intrinsic. So the medievals did use the phrase faith alone regarding initial justification. However, adding it to scripture is considered too far by Eck and contemporary Catholics. Okay, so are there any other questions? If not, I will go because this has been a bit of a long stream and I kind of want to have dinner. I'll give you guys like 30 seconds. Oh yeah, I gotta show you my new uh turn. Gotta show you my new uh video added on. I almost accidentally made this the intro to this video because they both have Pius the We do here now separate him from the precious body and blood of Christ and from the society of all Christians. We exclude him from our holy mother church and all her sacraments in heaven or on earth. We declare him excommunicate and anathema. We cast him into the outer darkness. We judge him damned with the devil and his fallen angels and all the reprobate to eternal fire and everlasting pain. So true. Okay. So what do you make of White's argument from Greek in his Sola Scripture debate with Madrid? He said the Greek word in Second Timothy three seventeen means complete. I would just say um, there's some sort of material but not formal sufficiency to, to sacred scripture. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't I, as a as a uh, as a material sufficiency enjoyer. I don't think uh, I don't think I have a problem. Okay. What's my favorite comedy hour from Reason and Theology? The one where I got blocked by Michael Lofton and our interview together got removed. That's my favorite comedy hour. Okay. So that's that looks like it's about to be all. So thank you and God bless. Glory.